Alternative Radio. Hello there, folks, and thank you for listening to the show. I'm Joanna. I'm Nate, and this is Stranger Than. Today we're going to be talking about music mayhem. Musical so, mayhem. A little bit like our Hollywood ones, but about musicians as opposed to actors. Today we'll be talking about Marvin Gaye, Karen Class, who was married to someone famous for a minute, <laughs> and Nancy Spungen of the fame, Sid and Nancy fame. Yes. That's a pretty dark one. Yes. They're all well, they're dark, all though. I mean, dark. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made our, our special list. But, uh, yeah, yeah. A varying degrees of darkness. <laughs> so we've got Marvin Gaye. He was born on April 2nd, 1939. I mean, everyone knows who Marvin Gaye is. If not, you know, look him up. I'm sure you've heard a Marvin Gaye song. Yeah, and if you haven't, you need to, because... Marvin Gaye's fucking awesome. Yes, very much so. His parents were Marvin Gaye Sr. and Alberta Gaye. And he was brought up in a housing project in the slums, which really had no power, no running water. Not, not, really, not really wonderful. That's some third world living, even for 1939. I mean, That's mo right. most, most places had power and ru running water at that point in America. Yeah. Yeah. Except but, for, I guess, you know, where poor people live. And probably more so, uh, more than just poor, but black people, because this was right. still a ridiculously racist time. He was the second oldest of four. And he also had two half-brothers. One was from his mother's previous relationship, and the other one was from one of his father's affairs. The church minister's affairs. Awesome. Yeah. Way to set an example there, Marvin Gay Sr. Well, it wasn't only that, because not only did he cheat on his wife, but he also beat the fucking shit out of the children. Struck him for anything he did wrong, or if he just pissed him off for no good reason. It was just like, I'm sick of you asking why, and beat him around, beat the shit out of him. Yeah, and I mean, back in those days, that's you could just like beat the shit out of your kids and not yeah. be, you know, punished for it and, you know, yep. criminally. And that was even that was something that went through till way, way later than it should have. I mean, even yeah. through the eighties, it was kind of a mind your own business sort of thing. Mm -hmm. you know, oh, well, what they do over there is what they do over there, and not now where you see someone do that and you call the fucking cops because they just beat the shit out of their wife or their child or their husband or whatever. Mm-hmm. Marvin described living at his father's house was like living with a king, a very peculiar, changeable, cruel, and all-powerful king. His mother was better. She encouraged him to sing. And he kept on singing. Uh, he basically sang his whole life. He says singing saved his life. He said he would have killed himself from the situation had he not had that as an escape. His father would kick him out of the house starting at 17 years old. And so he rebelled 
dropped out of high school, and joined the Air Force. He wasn't great in the Air Force. He has a kind of a streak in him that makes him not want to do shit other people tell him to do. You so, know, I mean, being in the military is not for everyone. That is for sure. No, no, no. He actually faked a mental illness to get out of the uh, to get out, and he did get honorably discharged from the Air Force. Well, that's very creative. But he just couldn't deal with authority. Yeah, and that's that's. You got to do that a lot in the military. If that yes, if that's the way you're going to go, you're going to have to submit to authority constantly. Exactly. That's that's the chain of command. <laughs> He was a singer and songwriter in the 60s and in the 70s, and he both wrote and produced his own work. He was also a political activist, and uh, it was just, it was Vietnam time, so it was all against Vietnam, you know, just like the majority of people at the time. He was nicknamed the Prince of Motown, and he began singing, you know, like I said, he sang his whole life, but he started when he was four years old. His father would play the piano and he would sing. He would sing for the church his father worked at, I guess. And uh, he also sang in school, in middle school and, and, and high school, of course, until he was gone. After the Air Force, he started up a singing group, or like a quartet, called the Marquise. It was in Washington, D.C. It wasn't very successful, but that's okay. Not, not a lot of bands are, really. Right. No one really gets that success like right off the bat. That no, no. And he was still learning too. He was learning how to songwrite and how to and all that kind of stuff. Probably how to perform as well. I mean, even though you've been singing, you know, ever since you were a child in church and in school, sure, you're able to sing the physical act of singing, but it takes some time to develop showmanship or uh, you know that sort of thing, and then also to write your own material. It can take quite a bit of time to find your voice doing that. Eventually, he went on down to Chicago, and they recorded several songs, uh, including one called Mama Lucci, which was his first lead vocal recording. They found work as session singers, so they would just kind of play, sing backup for other artists that were coming and recording, including people like Chuck Berry. And that's where a majority of people in music get their, uh, are making their money, as session musicians or, you know, sometimes cover bands. but. Uh, you know, there's a lot of session musicians, people who just will be able to come and play the music on whatever instrument or sing or whatever. After he was in Chicago, he moved to Detroit, where he be was working as a session singer there as well. But December of 1960, he played at Motown President Barry Gordon's house, and that impressed the shit out of him. So he ended up signing on with a Motown subsidiary, Tamla. And a subsidiary is just a company controlled by another company, just under a different name. Marvin didn't want to sing R&B. He, he wanted to do jazz. And he also added an E, like his name was spelled gay, G-A-Y. When, when he was born, he added an E to an N because he didn't want to anyone to question his sexuality. He didn't want to be thought of as homosexual. He just wanted to be, that was just his last name. Hmm. I didn't realize like that association was going on that early. Yeah, yeah. And he also didn't want to, you know, he kind of wanted to distance himself from his father. Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah, no shit. So changing the name up uh, was a thing there as well. I'm not sure which contributed more. I would imagine the father thing more and then, but who knows, maybe he was getting a lot of shit. Maybe people thought, 
he was gay, and that was significantly less okay in the 1960s than it is now. Yes. So he gets some number one hits. He's doing pretty good. He performs as a session drummer as well, so he can play the drums. Just doing some music stuff. In 1962, he's around 23 years old, and he's still putting out some hits. He's uh, making some top 50s and top 20s. He's got the solo hit, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. It got to number six on the Hot 100 and reached the top 50 in the UK. 65, he worked on a couple of hits that made number one. And he didn't really stay away from R&B. <laughs> as much as he tried to. I mean, his music is R&B. And, you know, right. What are you going to do? In 1968, he recorded Heard It Through the Grapevine, which I'm sure everybody knows that song. And the second his... you say it, I hear it in my head. Oh, yeah. I remember the, <laughs> the California Raisins would sing it in commercials and shit. Mm-hmm. That was his first song to reach number one in the Billboard Hot 100. And it topped the charts in other countries as well. It's, it sold four million copies. He kept writing and singing songs, but it didn't really like it that much. He felt kind of like a puppet. He wanted to play football, actually. <laughs> but they wouldn't let him because they were like, if you get injured, you, you might not be able to sing. So he wasn't actually allowed to play football. <laughs> he wanted to play for the Detroit Lions. Wow. In 1971, he signed a new deal with Motown worth a million bucks, which is six and a half million dollars-ish nowadays. And at the time, it was the most lucrative deal that a black recording artist had ever. You know, he worked with Diana Ross. The guy was, the guy was everywhere. The guy was a fucking legend. Yeah, he was. He worked on, in the 80s, he, started, he did Sexual Healing, which is another just huge, huge song. Uh, spent a record 10 weeks on number one on the Hot Black Singles chart and became the biggest R&B hit of the 1980s, according to Billboard. The biggest R&B hit of that whole decade. So he's a lot of success. Very yeah. successful. Not doing session stuff anymore, I'm imagining. It's, it's, it's a great time for him. Except that it's not. He was very depressed. And it could well have been because he was doing cocaine and heroin like it was going out of style. Right. Back when he was first introduced to cocaine, he would just he didn't like to snort it or smoke it. He just liked to rub it on his gums. And yeah, by the 80s, he was fucking freebasing the shit. As one does. Yes. I, I wish I had a big lump of cocaine right now to rub on my gums, actually. Yeah, that would help yeah. with your dental pain quite a bit. That would help my dental pain. <laughs> Strictly for medicinal purposes. Right? Seriously, though. It's like, here, can I get some cocoa paste, please, for this tooth? While I wait another, you know, three weeks to get into the fucking dentist? Yeah, no shit. Uh, don't be poor and uninsured, folks, you know. No, it that's you know. not, that's, it's not ideal. It's definitely it not, not ideal. <laughs> well, he ended up moving back to his parents' house. And on April 1st, 1984, the day before Marvin's 45th birthday, he got into a fight with his dad. Like, a physical fucking altercation. And his dad shot him in the chest and in the shoulder. Uh, the first shot killed him. And he was shot in his bedroom at 12.38pm and then pronounced dead at the hospital at 1.01pm. It's just really terrible how uh, his life took a turn like that. Oh, a swift turn. 
Really, I mean, like probably all the fame also comes hand in hand with being around all the people who can get you whatever you want as far as yeah. drug goes, yeah. drugs and go. So you get all this fame and money. And heroin. But um, but then it all gets spent on drugs to the point where you know you had a record deal for like you know that was worth a million dollars or six million dollars in today times, and uh, you still end up having to live back with your uh, fucking abusive parents or your you know one of them at least was abusive and uh motherfucker ends up shooting you in the fucking chest now according to marvin gaye's brother frankie who actually lived next door uh he heard the shot i imagine and came in he was holding marvin while he died and he said that marvin's last thing he said was i got what i wanted i couldn't do it myself so i made him do it so like he egged his father on Mm-hmm. knowing that it would end badly for him or exactly how he wanted it. His body was cremated and his ashes were scattered into the Pacific Ocean. They charged his father with first-degree murder, but he claimed it was self-defense, and it also turned out he had a brain tumor. So his sentence was reduced to voluntary manslaughter. They found him guilty, and he got six years in probation, and he died in 1998 in a nursing home. Well, hard so he, li- say... he lived with that brain tumor for quite a while, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. Must I don't know if the, they... the slow-growing types. Or if they pulled it out or, or what. But, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a, a sad, a sad, sad story. It's just it so fucked sad, up. It is a sad, sad story because I feel like he could have just gone on to do uh, a lot more. if Yeah, know, yeah. The those fucking pesky ass uh, drugs and the um, mental problems that they that addiction causes. There's so many artists. I wonder what it would be like had they served like survived longer. Jimi Hendrix is one. Like what? Mm-hmm. Had, what if he had seen the 80s and the 90s and stuff? Like what kind of music would he be making? Yeah. Uh, and even people like uh, Kurt Cobain. Like what would he be doing now had he not shot himself in the face or killed by Courtney or whatever the hell. <laughs> it's or like Jim Morrison. Like, what kind of shit would they be doing? Would the doors still be around? I mean, are those guys still play music. I believe. Would they yeah. still be playing music like, with for Jim? Whatever reason, whatever's in their like soul that allows them to like write and make this beautiful music, also kind of like destroys them from the inside out. There's some part of them that that you know that just seems to happen. I imagine if our mental health system was better in America and. Uh, if drugs were not considered so much a criminal offense, that maybe things would be different. Anyone listening, cocaine is bad. Heroin is bad. Crack is bad. PCP is bad. Just stick to some booze. Stick to some weed. Maybe the hallucinogens every now and then. Nothing that you have to snort up your nose or shoot into a vein. And, you know, no matter what your childhood trauma is, if you are riding that wave of success, just enjoy it and don't uh, second guess yourself like you deserve it. Talk to a therapist. Don't just um, don't just shoot up some heroin to like try and escape your demons because it's not going to make anything better. It's just going to make things worse. Also, no matter how much your kids are egging you on, don't fucking shoot them. No. So let's talk about. Karen O'Grady. She's not very famous in of herself. She married a Righteous Brother. The Righteous Brothers were quite famous. They were. Uh, one of the singers, 
uh, Bill Medley is the one she married. Mm-hmm. Uh, they dated in 63, got married in 64. They had a son called Darren. And in 69, they divorced. That's pretty much her whole thing with the Righteous Brothers. But that is not the end of her story. It is not. And real quick, anyone who isn't familiar with the Righteous Brothers. Didn't they do a recording of Unchained Melody? Okay, yes. Uh, so, yeah, they did the recording of Unchained Melody. And that was the one that was in the movie Ghost. Uh, uh, Ghost with Patrick right, because Swayze. That song is one of the most recorded songs ever. Mm-hmm. A country musician named Marty Rod- Robbins covered it. There's tons of people that have covered uh, that. 670 one. artists have covered that song, to be precise. Tons. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> but. The Righteous Brothers version of Unchained Melody is the most popular, and I mean, it's just most played, most popular. Also, you've lost that love and feeling, which was from Top Gun. Right, right. And interestingly enough, that song was co-written by Phil Spector, which I believe we featured in the Hollywood Mayhem (laughs) episode. (laughs) Yeah, we talked about him in... Hollywood Mayhem 2, where he was found guilty of the second-degree murder of actress Lana Clarkson on February 3rd, 2003. Also, You've Lost That Love and Feeling was ranked the most played song of the 20th century. No shit. Yeah. Wow. Pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. Well, after her divorce from... The Righteous Bill Medley. From Bill Medley. <laughs> she got married to a guy named Gerald Class, And they had a son, which they called Damien. On January 30th, 1976, when Karen was 32, she was attacked. She had dropped her five-year-old at the time, Damien, off at daycare, and she went back to her house on Hermosa Beach. She was supposed to go have lunch with some friends, but when she didn't show up, they came a-looking. They got to her house, and they saw a man leaving it, and when they got there, she was unconscious, and she had been sexually assaulted and strangled with her own pantyhose, and just sort of left to die. She fell into a coma, which she never came out of, and she died from her injuries in the hospital on February 4th, 1976. The police also found a towel next to her, and which they kept it as evidence for over 40 years. So this took a while for people to figure out what the fuck actually happened. Media reports at the time said that the bedroom showed signs of a struggle and the home looked like it had been ransacked. She had recently broken her leg and was using crutches. And the police believed that she was stalked by her killer, and but they didn't find any indication that they actually knew one another. Oh, that really bothers me i mean if he was stalking her for a while and then she breaks her leg and like he decides like make his move right how fucked up is that strangle her and rape her yeah like she's uh you know even more vulnerable now yeah like because she's injured so like here's the time to move in can't run away can't uh, really fight mm. back motherfucker police received over 300 calls in the first six weeks after the attack They investigated uh, over 100 potential suspects, and they made a plaster bust of who they thought the guy who did it was, which was a thick-haired bearded man with a trench coat and blue jeans. He was white, around 28, 
five seven to five nine medium build and a well cared for brown hair and beard. So he those those pla those a uh, busts that they used to make. That really takes me back. Like you know, you'd watch like America's Most Wanted. Yeah, yeah. Or Unsolved Mysteries, and they're like, police believe like the man looks here, and they like feature like yeah, like literally like a bust, like with the the head and maybe part of the shoulders and part of the chest, and it's like this like a mannequin head, except that they try to make it with features. Yeah, make it look like um, the the suspect, the actual suspect. But that's just crazy. It's like it's like on its like little pedestal. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> the shot goes to the bus. Like police are looking for this man. Please call our tip line if. After she was killed, Bill Medley took time off, and uh, he took care of Darren, who, who is ten at the time, as a good father does, because your fucking right. kid's mother it's... just was killed. Yeah. And he also hired a private investigator to try and find Karen's killer. They remained friends after the divorce. And, I mean, they kind of had to be in contact because they shared a child. Yeah. I'd say that kind of goes above and beyond. I mean, obviously, he probably had the the means to do so. Oh, yeah. You know, good on him that he wanted to find out what happened to her. Definitely. Give closure for his kid, at least. Private investigator didn't really come up with much, and it wasn't until January 27th, 2017, almost exactly 41 years from when she was attacked, the killer was found using familial DNA. Familial DNA is just DNA that has been added to a database, and the the person's a relative of the killer. So someone who's, um, you know, done one of those... 21 or 40... For the genetic genealogy thing yeah yeah someone did something like that kind of how they found the golden state killer Mm -hmm. um and they found out that the guy that did it was kenneth eugene troyer he was dead already but they found out who did it he had died well he had been killed in 1982 by the police it was january 1982 and troyer was in jail at the california men's colony in san luis obispo he had served three months of a four-year sentence for a burglary in Dana Point, and he just kind of walked away from the minimum security prison camp. Just left. Escaped. They don't have his minimum security, not a lot of guards. Over the next three months, he raped a couple women. One in Huntington Beach, and he was, uh, and he was uh, spotted near a liquor store after that, and the police spent three and a half hours looking for him. Four days later, they found him, and he refused to surrender, and he was shot in the back, the thighs, the ass, and the lower back. He died in a Santa Ana hospital, Western Medical Center, about an hour after he was shot. So back then, there wasn't a law about adding DNA from people like Troyer to certain records. They do that now. Just throw your DNA in just to make sure if you didn't do anything else, if there's old crimes or, or, or whatnot. Yeah, it's standard practice now, too. I think at least for certain crimes. Yeah. Certainly any kind of, like, sex crimes. Yeah, um, definitely. To, you know, put DNA in the in the database. But, I mean, probably, like, way back in 1982. They didn't. They barely, yeah. There was no laws about it. And so his, that's why his specific DNA wasn't in the system. Mm-hmm. In 1999, that's when the cops created the DNA profile of the actual towel, I believe. And that 
it cleared anybody it, that they yeah, actually had yeah, in mind exactly. for it. They had five people that they will they suspected it to be, but it cleared cleared them all. And then it was in 2011 that they decided they wanted to run a familial test, but nothing came back. In 2016 is when they asked again, and that's when they found a match. And it was from a male who had entered into the system in 2011. So the same year that they ran it the previous time, mm-hmm. he had put his DNA into the system right around that time, and they just missed. He must have done it after they looked. They didn't release the name of the man whose DNA it was, for obvious reasons. But they he lived in the same area that Karen and her husband had, and so that's kind of how they uh, figured the whole thing out. And he was actually the only, Troyer was only the second person to be matched by DNA because of familial matching. So, I mean, you know, not really any justice was found, but at least it was a bit of closure for the people who survive her. Right. Well, and the fact that, um, I mean, it sucks that it took so long to get closure, but I, I would feel... Glad to know that he hadn't been walking free all this time. Definitely. It was a good thing. It would it would be nice to know that he was killed just a few years later. Yeah. And so he hasn't just been walking around free to, like, you know, do the, doing this to, like, other people this whole time. Yeah. No, that's that's a good thing. <laughs> he, he met his end rather quickly and uh, rather deservedly, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can't just go around raping people. That's That's not... No, it's not cool. No. Now we'll move on to the dark story of Nancy Spungen. Oh, man. Sid and Nancy and their urine-soaked life. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Nancy Laura Spungen. She was born February 27th, 1958. Her parents were middle class, Frank and Deborah. Uh, When she was born, she was very cyanotic, which is... uh, Blue skin because of lack of oxygen. Mm-hmm. She had been being choked by her umbilical cord. Oh, uh, yeah, that happens. It is unfortunate. Uh, they did send her home at eight days, and it did not appear that she had suffered any brain damage. She was always a handful from a very early age. She was so much a handful that at three months old, three months, three months, okay, 12 weeks, she was prescribed. Phenobarbital, which is not something you generally prescribe to babies. No, yeah. It's a nervous system depressant and it's used for violent behavior. Three months old. She said that Nancy would scream and 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 and not shut up until they drugged the poor kid. And then the child would sleep for a few hours. With barbiturates, no less. Gosh. Yeah, with barbiturates. And then she would sleep for a little while and wake up and scream. Mm, I mean, that's kind of that really upsets me, though, that that was um, the route that those doctors decided to to go. Shit. Um, oh shit! Here's it's like a if a three month narcotic. Yeah, uh, <laughs> if a three month old is screaming continuously, it's like. I don't know. It seems like there should be other things done and tested to see what the problem is. Not just like, oh, uh, here's some barbiturates. Just fucking throw that in the formula and, you know, get her to shut up. Yeah. That doesn't seem to be like that would be 
very helpful to whatever is is um, it was the 1950s this. they didn't give a shit they're just like fucking whatever they just, just drugged give it everyone drugs. Just, yeah. you got a problem here take these drugs yep she was violent towards her little sister susan uh, but she did she liked david her little brother she was fine with her little brother she tried to kill her babysitter with scissors what yep she had attacked a psychiatrist once when it was suggested that she was acting out for attention. I'm something like, bitch, I'll show you attention probably, and went at her with a fucking, went at her with her, I don't know, with her fists or something. She was expelled from school at 11, but that was just because she didn't st- show up for a couple weeks. And so she got tossed into a therapeutic boarding school. You know, uh, I'm sure that was a great place to be. Yeah, that probably. Helped in so many ways, I'm sure. Probably one of those places where they just, like, beat you for your bad behavior. And, um, yeah. It's like, uh, here, you know, fucking do some hardcore manual labor and get denied food and stuff like that. Things of that nature. Too tired and, and, and sickly to do anything. Well, she ran away when she was 13 and tried to kill herself by cutting her wrists. It wasn't until 15 that she got finally diagnosed with schizophrenia. It doesn't surprise me it took so long. I mean, now our mental health stuff is crap. In the 1960s, I, even worse. Mm-hmm. It's a really young age to get diagnosed with schizophrenia, too. Yeah. Normally that's something that doesn't happen until you're uh, close to your 20s, right? Right. But, I mean, there are cases where, you know, it's diagnosed um, earlier, and, and that tends to be in the more severe cases where the, you know, psychotic behavior Right, right. Shows itself at an earlier age. Such as it did with, with Nancy. But it's definitely outside of the norm. And I wonder if that was even what was going on, or if it would, maybe they just for you know couldn't figure out what else, and so they're like, uh, must be schizophrenia. Yeah, it could well be. Could well yeah. be. Who knows? Now, Nancy was really smart. I mean, when she actually did school stuff, she did a really good job. Uh, she actually graduated at 16 years old and ended up going to a university in Boulder, Colorado that same year. Unfortunately, she got into trouble because she was a dick. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then she got arrested for buying weed from an undercover cop. Ironic, oh. that's in Colorado. Yes, because uh, nowadays you can buy weed uh, very much legally in Colorado. But, you know, that took a long time. That was until like 2012. So. Yeah, that was a long time. That just sucks, though. It's like, come on, buying weed from an undercover cop. Right? And then uh, five months after that, there was a bunch of shit that had been stolen from other students at the college. And guess where they found it? Her dorm room. Hmm. Uh, So she got arrested again and then expelled. And uh, her father actually came and got her out and uh, accepted a plea bargain on her behalf. She actually was banished from Colorado banished from like the entire state the entire fucking state like nancy you don't have to go home but you can't come to colorado anymore do not set foot in colorado that's like the old western like you know you need to get the hell out of the state and never come back yeah you stay out of my territory right she went back to philadelphia and uh then the the next year she moved to new york city it was actually with her parents okay now I don't know if they really had much they could say about it, mm-hmm. but 
That's that's what the story is. <laughs> she would make her money in sex work. She would do stripping and prostitution. When she sh- showed up to New York, she was definitely not very hip. And her time in New York turned her into the punk rock girl that she ended up being when she was killed. She bleached her hair blonde, smeared her makeup on, had torn fishnets, gaudy animal print, you know, exactly what you would expect a 1970s punk rocker to look like. Yeah. In 1977, she was 19 years old and she moved to London and she met the Sex Pistols. You may know them from their one album they released. I think it was called uh, Never Mind the Bollocks. Bollocks. Never Mind the the Bollocks, yeah. Here's the Sex Pistols. And she made a pass at the singer, Johnny Rotten, but, you know, he didn't want any of that. So she instead found herself with Sid Vicious. Soon after they began dating, he was the bass player. Soon after they began dating, they moved in together. Sid Vicious... He was a drummer. For, he, he would uh, perform for, with Susie and the Banshees as a drummer and the Flowers of Romance as well. And then in 77, February of 77, is when he replaced uh, Glenn Matlock as bassist for the Sex Pistols. He actually didn't know how to play the bass when he started with the band. Yeah, that they were just like, but hey, whatever. Yeah, well, I mean, like, where are the Sex Pistols? You know, we barely could play our instruments. Um, well, wasn't he like Johnny Rotten's like best friend, like from childhood? Could well be. I mean, all of those people were pretty uh, together. Tight, sh- yeah, I'm a, sure they a knew. Small tight knit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they knew like Robert Smith from The Cure, and they'd probably run into Morrissey here and there. You just know all that. All those people kind of saw. I mean, they may have even met Depeche Mode. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, I've watched some stuff on Sid and Nancy over the years, and let me tell you, Glenn Matlock, the the guy that um, Sid Vicious replaced as the bass player, he's one of those guys with the British accent that you can, like, barely understand. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Real, real thick. So thick. So thick. Like, you almost would need to, like, do the playback just a little bit slower to, like, actually be able to discern what he's he's saying there. Thank God for subtitles. Mm Mm-hmm. When Nancy and Sid first met, it was by many considered love at first sight. I mean, the rest of the Sex Pistols hated Nancy. She thought she she was loud. She was abrasive. Uh, Rotten called her a vicious old cow. From uh, but, what I gather, just about everyone that met Nancy hated Nancy. Oh, yeah. Well, she was not nice to anybody. No, she <laughs> she doesn't seem like she was a very likable person. But you know what she could do? She could get you heroin. And so people would put up with her because she could get heroin anywhere. She could get heroin from a place where there was no heroin. She would still manage Mm -hmm. to find some. Her and Sid were just together for 19 months. This 19 months was fueled with drugs, heroin, cocaine, probably literally everything under there. They probably did jankum. Who knows? Jankum, by the way, is when you ferment shit and then huff it. What? Yeah. That's a thing? I know, right? How disgusting Ew. is that? Times Ew. is tough. I really wish I didn't know that that even existed. Well, there you go. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that. Hey, no problem. <laughs> Nancy was 
always verbally abusive to Sid. Always. It was just public, just screaming at him. Mm -hmm. It was all over the tabloids. They called her nauseating Nancy. Nice. Tabloids loved her too, apparently. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And I'm sure that she also was beaten by Sid. I'm sure that they just had, I mean, they were just raging drug addicts. I'm sure they got just paranoid and beat each other up all the time. I think Sid didn't, I mean, I feel like that was something that Sid was accustomed to or, you know, it wasn't like a huge deal for him the way she bashed him just because his own mother was like so fucked up. Like, I don't think he knew a whole lot different. I mean, his mother like got him hooked on heroin. His mother was a heroin addict. Yeah. Like gave it to him from like the time he was like 12 or some shit like that. I mean, just... What fucking a piece great of shit. mother. Great yeah. mother. Fucking awesome mom. Right there. Mom of the fucking year. Mom of the fucking decade. Oh my god. So, I mean, it was like Nancy comes along with all her, with her fucking heroin and her fucking abusive ways. And it's just like, oh, well, this just like fits into my life perfectly. Like, hey, nice. <laughs> Love at first sight. They, she was so hated by the group that they managed to get her banned from the 1978 U.S. tour. But, I mean, Sid wasn't the only person who was a fuck-up. I mean, the tour didn't (laughs) go far. It went, they got to a performance in San Francisco in January, and then the group broke up. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was a clusterfuck. It was. Well, and it was odd, the places that they played, too, because they did, I think they did, like, Tulsa, Oklahoma. They did Texas. And then California. It seems like they they might have done better in, like, a northeastern circuit. Probably. Even in California, like, you know, probably would have been fine, but I mean, just... Like Texas? I'm sure Texas was like, Sex Pistols, awesome. <laughs> Imagine they show up and they're just fucked up and they play a shitty set, and I'm sure the venues were not happy and just like fucking shooting heroin everywhere, just like... <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, they were just like one giant clusterfuck. Oh, right yeah. There. <laughs> uh, after the group broke up, big shocker here, Sid went on a bender. He actually ended up overdosing on methadone, which is weird, but he did. And he was, uh, he had to spend some time at a hospital in Queens, New York. After he got out, they went to Paris. Sid and Nancy went to Paris. They were going to oh, film Oh, it's sp- so romantic. Yeah. yeah Sid and Nancy f- in Paris. They were going to film a mockumentary about the, so- the Sex Pistols. But... Sid just hung out in his hotel room and got higher than balls and would never show up to film. Nancy didn't want him to leave. She would slit her wrists somehow if Sid was going to leave just so that he would stay. Yeah, Nancy seems a little codependent there. The director tried to get Sid off drugs and join the production, but that wasn't happening. That was not going to happen. No. Sid needed to be all fucked up on heroin and have Nancy by his side. That was how Nancy wanted things. That's how it was supposed to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, after Paris, they moved back to New York City and lived in the Hotel Chelsea in Room 100. They were registered there as Mr. and Mrs. John Simon Ritchie. John Simon Ritchie is Sid's real name. Strangely, his mother did not name him Sid Vicious. That is almost a little strange, just because of the type of person she was. But Oh, yeah, yeah no shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, 
Vicious, I, I can't remember where the Sid part came in, but Vicious, uh, you know, Johnny Rotten's friend had a, a, a hamster that was named Vicious, and that's where he got the name from. <laughs> nice. <laughs> from he was very hamster-like. Hamster. <laughs> <laughs> well, as no one should be surprised about, now that they're back in New York, they're using even more still drugs. So they're, they've never really gone, like, slid back. They just keep doing more drugs, and then more drugs, and then more drugs, and... It's just, like, so terrible that this is their idea of, like, happily ever after. Just, like, living in shit and fucking being high as fuck and probably just, ugh, just all sorts of, like, awfulness. Oh, my God, seriously. I just, all the time, just not knowing really what's going on, and... Or just not remembering huge chunks, just feeling like shit, hungover whenever you can remember. It's like, you know, train spotting, like, great movie, but not a way I want to live my life. And no, for no. them, it was just like, yeah, let's just have it be, you know, train spotting the this life. Is how we are. Yeah. Well, on October 11th, they, they decided to have a party at their hotel room. Sid ate 30 pills of some barbiturate and. He was out. 30 pills. He ate 30 pills. 30 pills would kill a Neanderthal. Right. 30 pills would kill a couple Neanderthal. But he is fine. Well, I mean, he's passed out. That's just what he takes to go to sleep, you know? Yeah, no shit. It's been a long day. <laughs> That's right. Let me take, like, my bottle of prescription meds to, you know, get a good night's sleep. <laughs> take, the, take the entire prescription at one time. Mm-hmm. Well, on October 12th, 1978, around 11 a.m., a bellman finds Nancy's corpse. She was under the sink in the bathroom of the hotel room, and she had a stab wound in her stomach. Sid was wandering around just fucked up, saying that he'd killed her. But there are some conflicting reports about the knife that was used. According to the police, it was a Jaguar Wilderness K-11, which was not the 007 hunting knife owned by Sid Vicious. Sid was arrested after the murder, and he was charged with second-degree murder. And he told the police that he, that he killed her. He was like, I did it because I'm a dirty dog. And I guess that's, that's a quote. I did it because I'm a dirty dog. But then later he took back a statement and said he did kill her. Honestly... How could you take Sid Vicious's word at, that he did anything? Right. Well, I he don't doesn't think, know. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think Sid Vicious can take his word. No, not at I all. I think he had no fucking clue what happened, and that was probably terrible because you know she's dead, like right next to him. Like, well, so she either was, he was he was she was in the bathroom under the sink. Oh, yeah, okay. With a stab wound to her stomach, and he was just wandering around. I don't know, maybe he slept in the bathroom, I don't know. He doesn't Well, know. he probably slept in any number of places, but... Yeah, more than um, likely. Probably, though, he wasn't... Either he was, like, blacked out and did it himself and can't remember, or he was passed out and somebody, like, fucking stabbed her to death while, while he was fucking, like, passed out on pills. Now, he was released on bail. Ugh. And he told some people that he did stab her and leave her to die. 
but then he told all kinds of different stories. He was just there's mm-hmm. many stories about what happened that night coming from Sid. Now yeah. it was Sid's mother, Anna Beverly, that gave Sid the heroin that killed him. Yes, and some people think that she might have done that on purpose because it was like quite a bit. He gets out of, he gets released from jail on you know gets bonded out finally and just you know does some heroin and then does some more heroin and some more heroin and at the point that the fatal dose was given he was so fucked up he couldn't even he wasn't even conscious enough to like you know put the tourniquet on and inject himself his mother did it for him and uh, that was at 21 he was 21 years old yeah and uh a lot of people think that she intentionally gave him like a lethal dose just like, you know, to be nice to prevent him from having to spend like life in prison. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's really fucked up that that's what you think is going to, you know, solve the problem. Like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just murder you nicely so that you don't have to deal with this. I mean, fucking when you're, all whacked out on drugs for so long. <sighs> that's just the kind of shit that you think makes sense. Yeah, I guess it made sense to her. Fucking I mean, Christ. this is the same person that got him addicted to heroin in the fucking first place. So, and now they were pretty sure that Sid killed Nancy, and so the NYD, NYPD closed the case. They were just like, yeah. "All right, case closed." Case closed. Well, I mean, that was kind of like an an easy way to to close the case because oh, yeah. Sid is now dead. Um, as to whether or not he did it, I think there is still kind of a question mark looming because... Oh, well, yeah, I mean, there was I'm a... sure he doesn't, he didn't know for sure what actually happened, and there was any number of people kind of coming and going that could have uh, been the ones to do it, but, you know, he was her boyfriend, they had this fucked up relationship, and then once he, you know... Once he killed himself, it's like, well, now we don't have to investigate this shit anymore. We can right. wash our show. hands from this fucking debauchery. Now, that evening, there had been a guy named Rockets Red Glare. Yes, Rockets Red Glare. That showed up. He was uh, he brought them some drugs. Yeah, he actually brought them 40 pills of Dilaudid. Mm-hmm. Dilaudid is strong heroin. <laughs> so, like, that's cool. Uh Rocket's Red Glare was like a really nerdy looking guy too. Was, oh yeah, he was uh, in tons of movies and stuff. Yeah, and TV shows. Like I don't know who the fuck he is. I haven't seen any of the movies, but he uh, he's kind of a a character actor. He's always kind of plays mm-hmm. a skeezy kind of junky kind of dude. Uh, his name. Well, I guess that was really easy for him. Like, it wasn't a far stretch. <laughs> he was he was big in the porno scene, and he was big in the punk rock scene at the time. And excuse uh, me, ma'am, I have a pizza delivery. Right. <laughs> Now, he actually said that he killed Nancy, but not everyone believed him because he was kind of a shit talker. He oftentimes would just say things to make him sound cool or like hip or whatever. He also accused the other drug dealer that had gone there of that he had killed Nancy and they'd taken some of the money and stuff that was missing. But, I mean, there's no real evidence. And if there is... The cops aren't looking into it. Uh, There was a British biopic that came out in 1986 called Sid and Nancy. It was by a guy named Alex Cox. 
And in that, they suggest a theory that they had a, that Sid and Nancy had a, a suicide pact. And Sid was like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Like, as far as the suicide pact is concerned, and she freaked out and attacked him. Mm-hmm. And apparently he was just like holding a knife in front of him and she lunged into the knife. That's pretty... I mean, considering their life, I mean, anything, anything happen, is possible, really. really. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, no one No one really knows. The manager of the Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaurin, doesn't think that Sid could have done it. Uh, he even believes, in 2009, he was certain that Sid, that Sid was innocent because he, he also thought it was love at first sight. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's... I mean, no one knows. Even if Sid Vicious were alive today, no one would know what right. actually happened that night. If you were partying with Sid Vicious and, and Nancy chances of you remembering that evening are slim to fucking none yeah i mean the booze the drugs the everything i mean jesus yeah it's it's definitely that's some next level shit right there yeah yeah i would imagine that the sex and who knows i mean once you're you know like using that you're doing all those drugs for such a long time. I mean, how do you even tell what's real and what's not at some point? Like, right. Yeah. Did I just imagine this happening or did it actually happen? It's like a scanner I darkly. Mean, I just don't know where they're just, you know, they get the fucking drugs and it just completely disassociates them from reality. Mm-hmm. And taking as many drugs as they took for as long as I'm sure would do the same goddamn thing. And I would be, really shocked if that wasn't why they did it. I mean, Sid had a pretty rough life. Yeah. Shit wasn't great for Nancy either, but it seemed like both of them uh did not you know, had a really bad start in life and yeah. then yeah. then they found each other and just and made a really bad end of it. Crashed and burned. I mean, 21 and 19. Jesus Christ. It's insane. And it's just, yeah, it's insane and it's and it's terribly sad and awful. Like this should be no one's ideal of uh, true love. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You should not be needing to take all of the drugs all of the time in order to be with the person that you quote unquote love. Yeah, this is a love story dipped in shit. Basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, that's what we have for the musical mayhem. Man, it's a uh, it's almost like these musicians get it worse than the actors do. Right. <laughs> Fucking You think Christ. Hollywood's fucked up just uh Well, they're in Hollywood too, but I guess I mean not not, all the, yeah. not really in the city, they're, but it's Yeah. Kind of... I mean fame and fortune doesn't uh end well for a lot of people as much as you, you know, might as much as one might think it does. Oh, yeah, no. And no. if you think, like, the acting scene's messed up, then, you know, just just check out the music scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so many musicians can't handle the fame and the fortune and kill themselves or, or, or whatever, you know? It's it's sad. Mm-hmm. Because it, it sad. continues to happen. I mean, just recently, Chris Cornell was found, you know, dead... <sighs> More than likely hanged. Well, he was hanged, but I mean. Hung himself, yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that breaks my heart because, yeah, he was so gifted. Yeah, 
Yeah. Soundgarden was actually, that was my first like concert I ever went to was a Soundgarden cool. show. And then and he did fucking, and then he did fucking Audio Slave after that. And it yeah, was I was great. a fan of Audio Slave. I loved Audio Slave. But I was a fan. That's okay. I was a fan music of both. Is, music is entirely subjective. It is, and he was really fucking great at it. So yeah, one of the one of our friends in high school, his father actually played piano for Chris Cornell's piano lesson. Wow. So yeah, you know, got to be careful with your drugs you take. Don't yeah, take all be of the drugs. With the drugs you take, and um, yeah, got to. Uh, Enjoy your success when yeah. you have it, because yeah. I feel like so many they just people are just get damaged, and then you get like booted to these heights of fame really quick. Sometimes, like when you have like a big hit, and then I think people like just in some way they just internalize it to feel like they're they're like a fraud and they don't deserve it, and then they turn to drugs. And, or they're just yeah, not just... prepared for all of the stress. I mean, I'm sure it happens mm-hmm. with sports players as well. Yeah. Just anybody who's comes from humble beginnings and then is, you know, thrust in, son, in, in front of the world, it's stressful. And oftentimes you don't have a grace period where you mm-hmm. learn the ropes. You're just from point A to point B. And right. It's, uh, or I guess point A to point Z with nothing in between. And forget about all the internal struggle you might face with all that, like all the people that, the external people in your life that come into your life once you have fame and fortune. Yeah, trying to get something off of you or in some way. just It's not an easy thing. The media, you know, all that. I guess uh, the the only uh, advice I can give on that is like heroin is never the answer. (laughs) Don't shoot heroin. Like... Don't use cocaine. Oh, yeah. Like, cocaine is bad, too, but, like, I mean, I feel like most of all. Like I said before. Do not do heroin. <laughs> a few, a few, a few uh, hallucinogens, a little bit of weed, some booze. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. You know, everything. Everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. Except for heroin. Except never. for heroin and cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Never, never. Never those. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We thank you very much for listening. And uh, you can find us at any of the social media places that we are at under Stranger Than or Stranger Than Podcast. You can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash Stranger Than Podcast. And there it's a dollar just for fun. It's $2 a month for ad-free regular episodes. And then it is $5 a month for the ad-free regular episodes. And then also a bonus true crime episode. Yes, these sound like true crime. Shut up. And (laughs) (laughs) check out the podcast syndicate we are a part of, ageofradio.org. Tons of other great podcasts there. And if for some reason you can't listen to us on whatever podcatcher you normally use, you can catch us at ageofradio.org slash stranger than. You can listen to our shows and look at our lovely artwork and all that kind of fun stuff. Other than that, I think we will talk to you next time. And stay strange.